Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. church. Great to see you guys. If you guys are in uh, Kingdom Kids, you can head back to the door and meet your, your teachers there. Have fun back there this morning. Uh, well, hey, if I have not met you, my name is uh, Ian, one of the pastors here at the King's Church, and uh, really grateful to uh, see you this morning. Glad you decided to spend your Sunday morning with us. Uh, I'm grateful to be back uh, preaching. Had the last uh, three weeks off as I uh, kind of wrapped up the end of the school year and uh, really my uh, teaching career, which is a little surreal still. So uh, thanks to uh, Pastor Pad and for uh, Michael from Alathia and then last week for uh, Rob for uh, just serving us really well and opening up the scriptures for us. So uh, grateful for you guys for uh, doing that. Well, we're beginning to uh, come to the home stretch here of our series that we've been walking through since uh, the end of January uh, that we've entitled The Kingdom of Heaven. And we've been walking through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's chapter 5, uh, through seven, and so we'll be finishing this up in June this month. Can you believe it's June, by the way? June second. I know the the kids can. They're like, heck yeah, it's summertime, right? And teachers, amen, right? Uh, but it is June second. It's crazy. So we'll be finishing up this series in June, and then transitioning into uh, something new in July for the rest of the summer. And a shameless plug: you'll need to come to our member meeting this afternoon to hear more and uh, where we're headed. So looking forward to that time today. Uh, But today, as Carolina just read, we are in Matthew chapter 7, and we come to a really famous uh, passage of Scripture. I mean, you've heard this passage before, right? And one of the reasons why it's famous is a bit ironic to me. Uh, This is not necessarily famous within the church, but it seems to be people outside of the church's favorite Bible verse. You ever notice that? I mean, it's used all of the time, right? We'll often hear this verse quoted from those who don't even believe necessarily in Jesus. Now, this is without a doubt one of those favorite sayings, and what tends to happen is we'll make a statement, we'll assert some kind of truth, right? Uh, Usually it's something controversial or work with something related to sexuality or heaven and hell or something like that, and you'll hear quickly people respond, well, you know, don't judge, right? Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, or they'll say something like, well, only God can judge me. You're not really allowed to judge me. Right? And all of this essentially means in our culture, listen, don't evaluate my moral choices. Right? Don't evaluate or judge my behavior. You have no right to do so. And look, in the book that you say you believe, Jesus says don't do that. Right? Have you ever heard this? Am I you resonating with this at all? This is used all of the time. Now, part of the reason why this exists is because we live in what's been dubbed a post-truth era or culture, right? That was the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year a few years ago, post-truth. I feel like we're getting a little loosey-goosey with that, by the way. There's a hyphen, so I guess that makes it a word and not a phrase. Uh, But that's kind of how they described our culture, right? That we live in this post-truth era where to claim anything as being absolutely right or wrong is immediately rejected. or Even the idea of truth is up for grabs. But we do seem to live in this weird cultural moment where on the one hand, don't judge me is the mantra, right? But it feels like, if we're being honest, there's still a whole lot of judging going on, isn't there? 
Like on one side of our mouths we say, don't judge me, only God can judge. Who am I to judge? But then on the other side of our mouth, or should I say on the other end of our phones, on social media, aren't we quick to pounce on whatever the hot topic of the day is and make a snap judgment and immediately come to conclusions of what's happening around us? So all of this, I think, begs the question for us this morning, what in the world does Jesus mean here? Is the culture right? Is the way that they're quoting this verse accurate? Or is there a better way based on the context here and studying what Jesus says to actually interpret this and apply this? And the bottom line here, and really this is all of the conclusion of Matthew 7 of the Sermon on the Mount, how in the world do we relate to those around us? That's going to be the key theme that Jesus is going to hit over and over again. Well, here's our main idea this morning. Here's what I think Jesus is communicating to us. Disciples of Jesus should avoid having a judgmental spirit towards others by remembering their own need for grace. Disciples of Jesus should avoid having a judgmental spirit toward others by remembering their own need for grace. And so we're going to see this point uh, as the text moves on. We're going to talk about judging and judgment in the first two verses. Then we'll talk about specks and logs. And then we'll conclude by that really bizarre and difficult saying and talk about pearls and pigs. But before we jump in, would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together this morning uh, as your people, as those who are in need of your grace today, uh, in need of a word from you. And so thank you, first and foremost, that you have given us your word. The Holy Spirit, you've inspired what is within this book and that you have written this for our benefit. So God, may you give us ears to hear this morning, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to respond to the good news of the gospel as it's contained in this text. Show us the ways that we in our hearts are drawn to this judgmental and critical spirit. And in your kindness, would you draw us to repentance? Help us to see where we're missing it, and may we turn to you as our only hope and as where we can find forgiveness and where we can inhabit this brand new kingdom where, Jesus, you are king and you've promised to come and set all things right. So whet our appetite today. Help us in your word. May you strengthen us now as we do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin by looking at verse 1 and talking about what exactly Jesus means there. Because I think we need to do some work defining our terms. So again, verse 1 says this, Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. We've already set up how this phrase is used in culture, but I think it's actually helpful to start with what Jesus does not mean by this statement before we present what I think he does mean. So Jesus can't mean by this statement that we are never, as Christians, to make judgments or evaluations of others. Jesus can't mean that we are to ignore whatever is happening around us in the lives of others. And let me make a case why I think Jesus is not saying that. Here's what John Stott says. I think he's on to something here. He says, Our Lord's injunction, injunction to judge not cannot be understood as a command to suspend our critical faculties in relation to other people, to turn a blind eye to their faults, pretending not to notice them, and to eschew all criticism, and to refuse to discern between truth and error, goodness and evil. And I think both the context and the definition of judge here will help us see that. So let's think about the context for a minute. 
Right? The problem with arguing that is that the entire backdrop of the Sermon on the Mount assumes that we are making evaluations. It assumes that we are making judgments of what is happening in the lives of those around us and in our own lives. I mean, think about some of the main points that Jesus has hit so far. He warns us not to be like the hypocrites. And there he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, how do we make sure that we are not like the hypocrites? We have to evaluate who they are and what their behavior looks like. Right? He calls his people to be salt in the midst of a decaying world. He calls his people to be light in the midst of the darkness. All of these require us looking around and evaluating what's really going on in this world. What's really going on in the lives of those who are around me and then what's going on in my own heart? All of that requires making evaluations and judgments. And even more than that, in just a few verses, if we look at the immediate context here, Jesus will warn us not to give what is holy to dogs or pearls to pigs. Right? If Jesus really means we're never to make evaluations of others, then he's a living contradiction, right? He'd be like, hey, don't judge others, you pig, Right? That would be problematic. He can't possibly be meaning that. Then in verse 15, in just a few weeks, we'll look at this. He says, watch out for false prophets. And you know how you watch out for them? You observe the fruit in their life. You evaluate what is going on in their lives and in their so-called ministry. So as D.A. Carson has said, this passage certainly does not command the sons and daughters of God, the disciples of Jesus, to be amorphous, undiscerning blobs. I love that who never under any circumstance whatsoever hold any opinions about right and wrong. All right? Now, let's transition from context to definition. Right? Now, most words have a kind of semantic range to them. That's why if you look up a word in a dictionary, typically it gives you a number of words or a number of ways this word can be used. We'll judge here, krino in the Greek is the same way. This has a really wide range of meaning. It can mean to judge judicially, Think of a courtroom. It can mean judgmental, like to be harsh and critical towards others. It can mean to be condemning. But it also can mean more generically to discern, to evaluate, to decide or consider something that is going on. So here's what I think Jesus is getting at. And I think the example he's going to give will make this clear. Jesus is warning his disciples against having a critical and judgmental spirit towards others from a position of self-righteousness. He's warning against this harsh, this critical spirit, this judgmental spirit that might exist within us coming from a posture of self-righteousness. He's essentially saying, don't judge others harshly. Don't judge them unfairly or improperly. Which means this. This has less to do with the action of making judgments and far more to do with our posture and attitude as we do so. And we know this to be true, right? There's a big difference between evaluating something and condemning something, isn't there? There's a big difference between making judgments and being judgmental. You see, it's possible to weigh what's going on in the world around us, in the lives around us, in a somewhat neutral sense to say, hey, is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? But to condemn... Right? But to be judgmental is to almost judge them in the final sense. We're almost communicating that a person is irredeemable because of something we're observing in their lives. That they are worthy of being rejected. That we are better than them. 
right? How dare they do that? I would never do that. Anytime we make those statements, I think we're slipping into the warning here. And by the way, this warning, this is the warning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the warning of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember all the way back to chapter 5. Jesus says this startling phrase that your righteousness, that my disciples, those who are going to follow Jesus, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Startling because the scribes and the Pharisees were the extra super holy people, right? And he says, no, no, you must exceed their righteousness because they only judged the exterior. They had an outside-in righteousness. They thought if they checked all the boxes, then my soul will be fine. And Jesus calls us to an inside-out righteousness. That we fundamentally have a heart problem. That our heart needs to be made new by the good news of the gospel as the Holy Spirit saves us. And then the externals follow. This is the warning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not have a posture of superiority over others. Do not stand over others in judgment. That is the lesser righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But here's the uncomfortable reality I think all of us should be confronted with this morning. The spirit of the scribe and the Pharisee, that lesser righteousness, man, it lives within all of us. This temptation is a constant one if we'll open our eyes and see it. I mean, how easy is it for us to enter into a situation to enter into a room, to go into work on Monday morning, to wake up and deal with our kids in the morning and immediately flip on the judgment switch. Honestly, for me, it feels like a default sometimes. So I can just confess up here. Y'all can join me if you would like, right? We can judge and condemn others based on their appearance, the way they talk or the way they look, right? Their socioeconomic status. Maybe, like, we're, we're Christians, so we, you know, we know we believe, and, oh, man, you know, that church over there, they just, their doctrine's all off, and they only knew what the Bible really said, right? Or we show up to Citigroup, and we feel better because, man, I did the CBR this week, right? I did my community Bible read. I even read Leviticus, right? I read about bodily fluids this week, and this person, man, they just, you know, God bless them, right? They, they don't really get it yet. Um, man, we do this with the way we raise our kids. Do I dare go there, Right? Yep, the, the mom and dad wars, what school we choose for our children, how we go about discipline, the act, activities that we allow our kids to do or to not do, right? I mean, the list could go on and on, but aren't we a people who are prone to judge? And you know what's adding just like gasoline onto the fire is the social media age that we live in, right? The expectation, the whole setup of those things is that you might judge others, I mean, we literally have likes and hearts, and we withhold those or we give those. I mean, it's all just set up on judgment and evaluation. And ultimately, the tragedy of this is when we come with that posture, it is dehumanizing to others. Because we are breaking someone down to a sum of what we can observe of their actions or their beliefs or their behaviors without knowing who they are as full persons. And it is dehumanizing to judge others from this posture. Now, I think we know when we're doing this, but let me give you a few other just insightful questions to maybe wrestle with. How do we know that we've crossed the line from appropriate evaluation, appropriate consideration of what's going on around us, to inappropriate judgmentalism? When is that line crossed? Well, the first thing you ought to think about if you're slipping into this is, are you delighting in the criticism of others? Right, if we're falling into what Jesus is warning against here, if we're this judgmental person, then we delight in criticism. We love to catch people at their worst. 
right? We love to make comments that are just help us feel better, right? Like, man, did you hear what that person did? We going from city group, we're like, man, that person's a mess, aren't they? Right? We love to delight in this. We get some kind of twisted comfort by doing this. That's the first thing we ought to think about. Secondly, we know we're slipping into this when we are quick to find faults in others. And then once we find those faults, we fixate on them. We attach ourselves to them. I mean, have you ever been around a fault finder? You know what I'm talking about here? The person who they just can't help themselves, right? I mean, you could be in the most serene place in the world. Like, you could be on the beach overlooking this glorious sunset, and this person's like, yeah, man, but look at that cloud that's just out of place, right? We all know the fault finders. You don't want to be in a meeting at work with a fault finder, right? That's like the worst. If you don't know a fault finder, by the way, it might be time to consider maybe you might be the fault finder, right? Uh, you might need to look in the mirror and say, do I have a critical spirit all the time? Can I help myself from saying those things that I always pop into my brain and I want to say? Right? But if we're quick to find faults in others, then we are harsh, right? we're always painting people in the worst light, and we're never giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. And Jesus warns us against that here. But here's the kicker of it all, number three. We do all of this at the end of the day, in order to feel better about ourselves, don't we? We can always find someone who is quote-unquote below us in whatever situation we might be dealing with, whether it be family life, whether it be your sanctification and growth in the gospel, whether it be your economic status, the ladder at work, whatever it is, you can always find someone who's below you, can't you? And what does that do? It makes you feel better. You, all of a sudden, are elevated. And it seems like we often do this as some kind of defense mechanism. Right? It's almost like, I don't really want to deal with the own stuff I'm dealing with, so I'm just going to put down this person so I might be lifted up. I'm going to put them down so I can be esteemed, and at the end of the day, I feel better. Well, when we do this, we are playing God without the credentials or the knowledge to actually be God. And you know what that's called in the Bible? Blasphemy. To take the position of God, to play God without the credentials to be God, is blasphemy. It's a very serious sin. Because to condemn someone with this judgmental spirit, it means we are making the final judgment on who they are. Right? Which means you're claiming to know everything there is to know about their situation. We can know someone's motives, we claim to know their circumstances, we jump to all sorts of conclusions, we paint them in the worst light, and of course the problem is we don't actually know what might be going on with that person, do we? Right, this is why Jesus tries to drive home his point with a very sober warning in verse 2. Don't miss what verse 2 says. Jesus says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Right? By the measure, by the standards, by the amount we judge others, Jesus says, whoa, 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 turn the tables on yourself for a moment. Are you willing to apply that same standard to yourself? Because God is going to judge you by that standard. God's going to judge you by the standard you are judging others. As John Stott, I think, has wisely said, if we enjoy occupying the bench, we must not be surprised to find ourselves in the dock. If we love occupying the bench over others, then we shouldn't be surprised when all of a sudden the tables are turned on us. So a simple question that we ought to wrestle with this morning is, do you judge yourself using the same standards that you are judging those around you? 
Are you judging yourself using the same standards that you are judging those around you? This is meant to be a sober warning. Like one day, we're going to stand before the Lord. Now listen, if you're here and you're in Christ, right, you've been justified by faith, you've been saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, your, your verdict is secure. Right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the Bible is also clear, we will stand before the Lord. And we will give an account for the life that we lived, how we steward the good gifts that God gave us. And if we are constantly having this critical, judgmental spirit, I think the scriptures are warning, you're going to answer for that. You're going to stand before God and answer why you constantly put others around you down, why you constantly condemned them. This is a very similar warning that Paul gives in the book of Romans. If you've read Romans, Romans 1 is this indictment on the sin of all of humanity, that all of humanity has exchanged proper worship for God for improper worship. And he seems to be talking about the pagan Gentiles. He says they worship birds and animals and creeping things instead of God. And it's almost like Paul's anticipating what's going on with the Jewish Christians in the church. He's going on and on about all these idolatrous practices of the Gentiles, and he knows that the Jews might be tempted to sit back and go, yeah, man, look at those sinners. How dare they do that? How dare they commit blasphemy like that? How dare they worship idols? And so Paul, in Romans 2, he shifts to the Jewish people. And here's what he says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. And here's the most startling indictment in this verse. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't forget what the Sermon on the Mount has already said. It's easy for us to judge the sexually immoral in the person who's out there committing adultery and it's public and we can all see it, right? But remember what Jesus says, be careful when you're judging those people and you're full of lust in your heart. Because what's already happened? You have committed adultery in your heart already. Be careful judging those who lash out in anger out there, right? Who even go as far as murdering others while you're harboring bitterness and resentment to your brother in your heart. You see what Jesus is doing. He's trying to wake us up. Don't take the posture of standing over others in judgment. Consider your own sin, right? Though we are prone to do this, you need to consider what's going on in your own heart, in your own life, your own worship, your own behaviors before you move outward to others. So we as a people, we are prone to do this, but the good news of the gospel that Romans 2 just said, is that God's kindness to us, his patience towards us, his forbearance towards us, that though we are a sick and depraved, judgmental people, Jesus still loved us. That while we were sitting on the position that only God deserves, but we put, himself, we put ourselves into the position that only God can be in, God still loved us. God still chose to save us. Jesus still came to set right what's going on in our wretched hearts. And Paul says in Romans that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And so the kindness of God, I think, is seen in this ridiculous illustration that Jesus gives us. All right, so let's read it. 
talk about specks in logs here in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is meant to be a ridiculous and humorous imagery. Right? Just think about it for a minute. Right? A speck. In the Greek here, this is a tiny piece of straw, chaff, or wood. Think like a small and insignificant piece of sawdust that maybe got into your eye when you were doing some kind of woodworking. Right? Then, think of the log. Right? This is a piece of heavy timber. It was often used as a reference to a beam that was used in roofing construction. Here's the best use of it. Right? Josephus talked about it in Jewish literature as a huge beam of wood that was used as a battering ram on ships to attack others. Okay, are you getting the imagery here? The picture here is of an individual with a battering ram, or a two by four, or a giant tree log sticking out of their eye, trying to perform a task that requires great precision. Right, it requires great focus and clarity to remove a tiny piece, a tiny speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. I mean, if you saw this happening, what would you do? Right? Would you just let this go on? Right? This is an absurd picture. The person is unable. I mean, they're going to have this log swinging around while they're trying to get up into this little speck. I mean, it's absurd. You would never let this happen. You would never encourage this. Here's what Jesus is communicating. The person who routinely takes up the posture and attitude of being judgmental and being condemning towards others is far more aware of other people's flaws than they are of their own. But the reality of the situation is that their own flaws and sins are a much bigger deal than the sins and flaws of their brother or sister. Just compare for a moment the size of a speck versus a log. The imagery could not be clearer. The sin in your own life is a far bigger deal. It should be a far bigger deal to you than the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, we'll come back to the speck because the speck shouldn't be there, so we'll talk about what to do with that, but Jesus is warning us, deal with what's going on in your own life first. And here's the reality. He's warning that sin in this way, this condemning, judgmental spirit, it has a completely blinding effect on our lives. It can be happening, and we can have no idea it's going on. After all, how does a person get to a place in the illustration where they do not realize they have a log sticking out of their eye? Right? They are being blind to the situation. They are not seeing clearly. They have been duped and fooled, whether it's willful or accidental. And this is exactly why Jesus calls them a hypocrite. He calls the person who is doing this a hypocrite. You know why? Because they are acting like the hypocrites in the Sermon on the Mount, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were totally blind to their own lostness. They were totally blind to the issues going on in their lives. They thought everything was fine because externally they checked all of the righteousness boxes. Tithe twice a week, right? We fasted, fasted twice a week, excuse me. We tithe, right, all the way down to our spice racks. We pray in public places, long prayers. We memorize books of the Bible, all while they have a giant log sticking out of their eye, trying to get specks out of their brother's eyes. Jesus says we are no different if we routinely take up this posture. 
There's a story that Jesus is going to tell in Matthew 18 of a man who has a debt that is so big, he could work the rest of his life, and he will never pay it off. And the judge calls him in, and the judge says, listen, I'm going to have compassion on you. I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to cancel your record of debt. And he wipes the slate clean. The man is joyful. He runs out, and all of a sudden, he sees someone who owes him a couple of bucks. And you remember how the story goes. He demands that that man pay him his money right now. And what's Jesus trying to communicate by that story? Right? If you are demanding that one or two dollars is paid, if you are finding that speck in your brother's eye while missing of the magnitude of grace that you have been shown in the gospel, you have missed the whole point. You have missed the whole message of grace. We are acting hypocritically. By the way, notice that this is an in-house family business here. This is not um, to the outsiders. This is to your brother. This is to your sister. This is to someone within the household of God. Right? We'll get to those outside of the faith in just a moment. But Jesus' warning and the tragedy here is that the church, right? The church made up of people who have been forgiven of an infinite debt who've been brought together, not by their own merits, but the merits of Jesus to be family, that the church can be one of the most judgmental places that exists. And that ought not be the case. He's keeping this in the family right now. Which may be, if we're being honest, that's why some unbelievers lob this verse at us. Maybe there's some validity there. Maybe they're seeing all of the judgmentalism and the criticism happening within the church, and they're going, I mean, honestly, read it. It's right there. Maybe we need to do some work on the plank in our own eyes and in our own relationships. So what's the way out here? Right? What, how do we solve this conundrum that we find ourselves in? Well, Jesus is inviting us. He's inviting us to a new posture and a new way of relating to others. He's teaching us how to inhabit as citizens the kingdom of heaven. And so he invites his true disciples to start with a log in their own eye. He's inviting us to consider the sin in our own life a far bigger deal than the speck in our brother's life. Because here's the thing, you have access to everything going on internally in your heart and in your mind, don't you? And you don't have access of that in your brother or sister. Right, you know firsthand what's running through your mind at all times. You know firsthand what your sinful urges and impulses are. Right? You know what you are drawn to that is improper. And let me ask you the question, is all of those, are all those things always just righteousness and holiness in your life? Are you just, just like a gravitational pull, more like Jesus? Is that you? It's not me, right? I'm assuming it's not you either. But yet, we just kind of set that aside and we assume the worst in everybody around us as if we know what's going on inside, as if we know every circumstance, as if we know what might be causing this activity or this action or this behavior to take place. Jesus says, no, 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 deal with your own stuff. Right? Start with yourself. Your sin is a far bigger deal. And when you begin with yourself, when you remove that plank, that log from your own eye, now you will be far more charitable. You will be far more kind to others in their issues, whatever it might be. Now, importantly, look how this log and speck imagery ends, right? We are still called to take the speck out of our brother's eye. It's still an intruder. It should be dealt with. It's not supposed to be there. But we are only called to do that when we 
have the right posture ourselves, when we can see clearly ourselves, when we are not being blinded by a giant log of our own sin coming out of our own eyes. I mean, think for a moment how you would remove a speck of sawdust from somebody's eye. Right? What does it take? It takes gentleness. It takes precision. It takes thoughtfulness. It takes great care. I mean, if you came to your brother and you were like, hey, you got a speck in your eye, and then all of a sudden you wield a bat or a hammer or a screwdriver, and you're like, yeah, yeah, let me take care of this for you. Your brother should recoil in fear, right? Like, no, 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 I'm good, right? I don't need you to take care of it with that instrument. This is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 6. We read this a few weeks ago in CBR. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, i.e., if there's a speck in someone's eye, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Paul says, yes, if there's something going on in your brother or sister's life, you who are spiritual should restore them. You know what it means to be spiritual? Take the log out of your own eye first. View your sin as a far bigger deal than their sin. Come with that posture. And then notice what the goal is. The goal is not for them to feel guilty. The goal is not for them to see that you're an expert speck remover, right? The goal is restoration, right? The goal is not to stand over people. The goal is to stand alongside people. And that posture is very different, isn't it? It is very different to stand over someone in judgment. It's a whole other thing to stand beside them and to point them to our common hope, which is Jesus, to point them to restoration with God, to remind them that Jesus came to deal with this, that Jesus in his graciousness and his kindness towards us has come to set right what has gone wrong. That is our posture. It is gentleness. And as we do so, the warning at the end, keep watch on yourself. It's so easy when we get in the business of helping others to become blind once again to our own sin. Keep watch on yourself. Do not stand over others. Come alongside them. So this morning, I think you ought to ask the question, what is your eye on? Jesus is giving us an analogy related to the eye. So what is your eye focused on? Is your eye always focused on what's going on in other people's lives? And not just that, but always focused on the negative things going on in other people's lives. Or are you able to take the log out of your own eye? Are you able to see with clarity your own sin, your own daily need for mercy and grace that Jesus freely offers us? Because if our eyes are constantly focused outward, we're going to miss and we're going to be blinded to the log in our own eye. So do the hard work there and then we move outward to others. And that leads us to verse 6. Maybe I should just end the sermon here. What do you guys think? Yeah, we'll, we'll jump in. Let me just read it. This is right on the heels of what he just said. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, this verse, to say the least, has long puzzled those trying to understand what Jesus is communicating here. So let's see if we can make a little bit of sense of the text. There's been various proposals how to explain this, but I'm just going to stick to what has been the traditional interpretation throughout church history. 
But first, let's, let's see what's going on in the text. It's important to note that Jesus has shifted away from the brother-sister language to an outsider now. So now he's saying, all right, now that you've dealt with your relationships within the family of God, within the church, now let's think outward. And Jesus uses some startling and strong language as he does so, right? He's calling some people here dogs and pigs. Let's talk about what he means by that. Now, dogs are not cute puppies here, okay? I know we like domesticated dogs, right? That was not a thing back then. You read that how you want to, okay? So these dogs were more of a wild roaming dog. They were uh, scavengers roaming the streets, dangerous because they were looking for food. And they were known for eating disgusting food. They would eat whatever they would find on the street as long as it was edible, right? They would lick lepers' sores. I mean, this is the dogs we're talking about. Then he transitions to pigs. Pigs are the most unclean animal in just common vernacular in Judaism at this time period. Right? And these are parallel statements. Don't give what is holy to dogs and don't give pearls to pigs. He's communicating the same thing. Here's what Second Peter says, right, to give you an idea, uh, quoting Proverbs. He says, the dog returns to its own vomit. Because remember, dogs eat whatever, so sometimes they throw it up. Then they go back to the vomit and eat it again. And then the sow, the pig, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire, right? Returns to the mud. It goes back to playing in the filth. Now, what connects the dogs and the pig here? is that neither one can recognize the value of something that is holy. Neither one can recognize the treasure and the value of a pearl. Right? Because after all, what are they worried about? What are dogs and pigs worried about? They are concerned about one thing, and that's being fed. Right? They want to eat. They want to find food. So a dog will eat whatever. It won't recognize if it is holy or if it's garbage. It will eat it. And a pearl is useless to a pig, right? If the pig tries to eat the pearl, in fact, it can be harmful to them. And so the imagery here is that you've thrown these pearls to pigs, and eventually they realize what's going on, and they are like, all right, I'm tired of trying to eat this. I'm going to trample on this and come after you, because at least you are somewhat edible, right? So that's the imagery we have here, throwing these valuable, treasure, holy things to dogs and pigs who cannot recognize it and will turn and attack you because you're more edible than they So, what in the world does Jesus mean by that, right? Well, let's begin with what is holy and the pearl. The pearl elsewhere is used in the Gospel of Matthew connected to the good news of the Gospel. That is the pearl. He's going to tell a parable of a man who finds a buried treasure, finds pearls, and he sells everything that he has to acquire it. It's the Gospel. It's the good news. And so Jesus seems to be warning this here. Don't continue to give to quote-unquote dogs what is holy if they don't recognize it. Don't throw your pearls over and over again to pigs and swine if they're going to continually trample upon it. Here's the traditional interpretation. The idea is not to continue to evangelize, to continue to share the gospel in the face of those who will trample on it, those who will not recognize the value of what is holy and of the pearl. Now, This is not an excuse to avoid evangelism. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But this is a call to use discernment. To use discernment. If someone is persistently hostile, if someone is vindictive, if someone is hateful, if someone is overly contentious in issues related to Jesus and the gospel, I think this is a call to consider moving on. This is a call to use 
discernment, which is how this connects to the previous discussion, by the way. Right? This connects because Jesus is instructing us how to evaluate and judge rightly, how to evaluate correctly what's going on around us. And so he says, yes, don't condemn, don't stand over others with this judgmental, condemning posture, but at the same time, don't be that amorphous blob that D.A. Carson talked about. Don't just be foolish and undiscerning in your relationships with others. That's an equal and opposite error. And while this can be confusing to us, this is actually the pattern of the New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10, go out into these villages and ask to stay in people's homes so you can tell them about the good news of the gospel. And if they refuse, shake the dust of your feet and move on to the next house. What's he saying? If they're not responding, if there's hostility towards you, feel free to move on. Right? Paul's pattern in the book of Acts is this. He starts in the Jewish synagogues. You know what happens over and over again? Hostility. There's this anger toward him. They are clearly rejecting the message. So what does he do? He goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the next place where there's a receptivity to the gospel. And by the way, he does so to provoke the Jews actually to believe, so maybe you can wrestle with that in your own life. But this is the pattern of the New Testament. So as we begin to close here, let me, let me think through a few points of application with us. Uh, number one, and this is critical, we shouldn't expect unbelievers to act like Christians. You know what we should expect unbelievers to act like? Unbelievers. How often, though, do we go to work and we come home and we're like, I cannot believe what this person is doing at work. Or we look at the political world or we look at what's going on in culture around us and we go, I just can't believe these people are doing this. I don't think that should be our posture, right? We should expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. It would be weird if they weren't, right? So we need to sometimes reset our expectations for what's happening, right? We should be very careful how we are talking and viewing and expecting others around us. Secondly, don't miss that our responsibility here is still to throw out the pearl, right? Our responsibility is still to throw out the pearl, and God is the one who takes care of the rest, Right? We can't change the fallen human condition, but you know who can is God. We are called to throw out the good news of the gospel. We are called to give what is holy out to others who desperately need to hear it. And then we pray, and then we trust that God moves. We pray that he changes hearts, that he takes what is spiritually dead in us and makes it alive. But that is his job. So we throw out the pearl, and God changes hearts. But thirdly, there are times we might need to move on from a hostile response to the gospel. I, this has maybe happened once in my life. This has maybe happened once. I think this is a rare occasion, but Jesus is saying, don't be undiscerning. Don't be foolish. There's possibility that this might need to happen. But as we close, I, I don't think this is actually the issue for most of us. I think the issue for most of us is not whether the pearl of the gospel is being trampled upon, Instead, I think we ought to ask the question, are we even offering the pearl of the gospel to others at all? Before we jump to applying number three there, before we jump to moving on, have we even started those gospel conversations? Have we even started offering the pearl, offering what is holy to those who are in desperate need of it? Because don't forget, you were offered that when you were a dog, when you were a pig, when you were unwilling to understand what was going on. The ultimate act of love is to share with someone the universe-shattering good news of the gospel. That though we were sinners, 
Christ died for us, and he offers us new life, and he offers us himself. That all the other things that we've been searching for to give us identity, satisfaction, meaning, and joy, they're all counterfeits. They're all meant to find their center of balance in Jesus. And remember our main idea. Remembering our own need for grace guards us against this judgmental and critical spirit. Well, remembering our own need for grace not only guards us against this, but it also is the primary motivator to turn outward and to share and offer the pearl of the gospel with others. Because, brothers and sisters, when we know how great of a salvation we've been given, when we deal with the log in our own eye, when we realize that we have been forgiven of an infinite cosmic debt against God, but that Jesus came and paid it all, drank the cup in full, said, it is finished. When we realize how great our debt is, we can't help but turn and offer that to others. So if you this morning are here and you are in Christ and you are not sharing the pearl with others, maybe this morning you need a reminder of your own salvation. Maybe you need a reminder of the own grace that you've been shown, not only on the day you believed, but right now in this moment, that Jesus is at work, that God is conforming you into the image of Christ, that we might be a people who are humble, that we might have a posture towards others of gentleness, of seeking restoration because we know we've been restored, because we know we've been saved of such a great debt. And then may we be a people who live differently and who look different because we are pointing to the king and his kingdom. May that be true of us. Let's pray.